If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up uh, to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, and then toward the end of our time, we'll kind of be in Psalm 8, but uh, Hebrews 2 will also say what we're going to say in Psalm 8. Um, so uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to gift one to you. Just raise your hands and uh, Jeff will run one to you gladly. Uh, and so that would be our gift to you. We just ask that it doesn't prop up a shelf or anything, that you actually open it and read it and use it. And so um, as, as you turn into chapter 2, let me, let me remind you, uh, we've opened this series and we're walking very patiently through uh, the letter of, of Hebrews. And uh, let, me, let me tell you what we've seen so far in chapter 1. The writer comes in. Uh, very quickly, and he says that in former times, God has spoken in various ways through the prophets. And then he says, in these last days, which is the time of period that we live in, he says that, that God has spoken to us uh, by the Son, namely Jesus Christ. That, that Jesus is God's final and decisive word to the world. And, and so he inaugurates the last days, because after him, there's not going to be a, a third period of revelation. That, that everything God has to say from here unto eternity, He says it to us through Jesus. And so, so if there is a, a fuller revelation, uh, it, it'll end up coming in the form of of clarification or, or amplification or uh, application to us in things that Jesus has revealed to us. Uh, through history and uh, namely through the Old New Testament. And, and so the writer comes in very early and he wants us to know one very important part of our life uh, with God. That He comes in and he says, I want you to understand the utter superiority uh, and, and the, the uniqueness of Jesus really over everything. But what we've been talking about these last couple of weeks is, is that Jesus is utterly superior to angels. Because, now, angels played this crucial role in reflecting uh, the worth of God in the Old Testament. And so, so the writer wants us to make sure that we don't come to this conclusion that, well, if God spoke to us in the Old Testament through the angels, and then it says in the last days... God speaks to us through the Son, that we don't make the mistake and think, well, Jesus has come along as just the better of all the angels. Uh, in fact, he says, he says, I don't want you to make that mistake because Jesus is not an angel. In fact, he told us in, uh, I think it was uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1, he says that, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. That He is the exact representation of, of God's nature. He is, the, he, is, he is God and He is the Son. And as, much, as such, the angels worship Him and they do His bidding. And, and the conclusion that the writer draws from, from seeing Jesus in this exalted place is, uh, is as, as God's final word to the universe is found really as we open up chapter 2. Of, of this letter. And I think, I think the best way for us to try to tackle this this morning is to say, okay, what we're going to get a read is really one cohesive thought, but we're going to break it in two sections. Uh, the, the first section, verses 1 through uh, 4, are going to give us some very practical thoughts 
Uh, and the second, verses 5 through 9, is going to be God's love expressed through Jesus put on display for us to respond to. Uh, and so that, that's kind of where we go. But let's, let's take these in some smaller bites. Let's go. Uh, Alan, you ready to go? We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 1. He comes in, uh, and, and the author uses this phrase, and we, anytime we get to these words, it's important to recognize, therefore. Okay? So based on what I have told you in chapter 1, therefore, there's going to be something added to it. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And so, so let's start this way. We live in what I believe, now when I say I believe, it's not as if I'm an expert, but I believe we live in the loudest time in human history. Like we, there is so much noise in our lives to the point that when we feel silence, we feel uncomfortable, right? I'll tell you how you know this. You ever get home and there's, you're not even watching the TV, but you turn it on? Because somehow silence exposes us. And we say, if, if I'm in silence, then there's something wrong in my life. And that's, that's a problem, but that's not where we're going today. Okay? But, but we live in the loudest times. At all times, somebody, somewhere, is trying to get our attention and try to deliver a message to us, right? You got commercials, you got billboards, you got Twitter feeds, you got campaign ads. I think there, there might be a campaign going on somewhere here in Azel, right? Okay? In fact, while we're here, let me just. Let me take three seconds to talk to you about this, okay? So, so rarely, actually never, do we talk politics here. Because our desire here at Merge is to make much of Jesus. Okay? And here's what I know. And let's just take our little bond issue uh, at heart. There are people in this room who are for the bond. There are people in this room who are not for the bond. Okay? So on Tuesday, someone's going to be happy and someone's going to be disappointed. Okay? So here's my plea to you. Let's be a graceful winner or let's not be a sorry loser. Okay? So you don't have to defend your thing. This is the one of the most beautiful parts of our nation is that we all have a vote and we all have a say. Okay? And now it dawns on me that regardless which way you vote, okay, we're going really, really too long in this, but regardless which way you vote, okay, your desire is to make a vote based on what you think is best for this community. Okay? Win or lose. Okay? So I don't, I don't know of the pages that people are tired of reading about because I believe pretty much 98% of Facebook is just insane anyways. Okay? So, so let's be graceful winners and let's not be sorrowful losers. All right? We are one community here and we all have to look at each other in the eyes at some point. Okay? Even if we've already said some things behind a keyboard that we shouldn't probably have said. But that's a different day, different lesson for another day. All right? But, but all the time, all the time we have these voices and we have these, these messages that are trying to be 
told to us. And, and so, in fact, it, it, there are a thousand things that flood our eyes and ears almost all the time. And the key here is to navigate the treacherous waters and, and deciphering which messages are worth focusing on. Which ones... And so, so these four verses expose this while urging us to pay the utmost attention to the utmost of messages. That, that, that the most important message we will hear of all of the messages comes from the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That, that God has revealed Himself and has made a way for us to be saved through faith in the person and the work of His Son. And that's the most earth-shattering news anyone will ever hear. And it's the most important decision that anyone will ever have to respond to. It never changes. And so, so the first word of verse 1, therefore, directs us to this appropriate application that, that given the superiority of Christ over the angels and His identity as the divine Son of God, Jesus demands and deserves to be heard. And so, so but we don't listen to the Son so that we can puff ourselves up theologically, that, that, that doctrine isn't for bludgeoning you know, fellow Christians to say, hey, I'm more right than you're right. Uh, it isn't to get on to, again, Facebook feeds and tell everybody um, how rotten they are and how much smarter you are than them. Uh, that's not the purpose of, of doctrine. In fact, um, and it's really not even to impress other people with how much you know, that, that we engage the Bible with, with the utmost seriousness and the utmost dedication in order to commune with God Himself. And as the author of Hebrews will tell us, avoid drifting away. He says, he says pay close attention to what you have heard lest you drift away. And, and so the language of drifting, it brings to mind kind of, you ever been in the ocean? Uh, and you've ever just kind of floated in the ocean and realized that where, what you thought you were here, but actually you're over there? And you're just like, well, I've drifted elsewhere. And so this is the word picture that the, the writer brings to mind. He says this, think nautical, that, that in the ocean, those who row in the wrong direction are not the only ones who failed to reach their desired destination. It's, it's those who also don't row at all. And, and so the writer tells us if, if we're not paying attention to the role of Jesus in mankind's story, and for us personally, if we take our, our eyes off the incredible and the miraculous work of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, that, that it's easy to drift away from this good news. It's easy to drift away from it. And so, so he says we anchor ourselves to Jesus because doing so keeps us secure in every season and in every circumstance of our lives. And, and so, but, but a spiritual drift is often undetectable when it starts, right? Um, that, that it's just like a boat in the sea that, that our souls can veer off course in just moments. Just little decisions that move us from here to there. And before you know it, you look and you say, where am I? How did, how did I get here? And the Bible will always tell you, because you took your eyes off of Jesus. Always. And so... So you don't, you don't need to be far off course to end up a very long way from where you initially intended. And the writer indicates that the only way to fight against the danger of spiritual drift is that we must pay attention to what we have 
heard. Expressly written to us in, in the Bible, that, that Christian faithfulness, it really doesn't have a secret formula that, that God sanctifies us by his word. That's John seventeen seventeen. Uh, but we avoid the danger of spiritual drifting by, by hearing, reading, meditating, and obeying his word. Robert Mueller said it this way, we avoid spiritual drift by dropping the anchor of our souls in the deep waters of the word of God. In the deep, deep waters of the word of God. But, but the true danger of drifting away is found in verse 2, leading us into to verse 3. He says, for since... For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, he asked this question, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And now here's, here's what I want you to note, that, that the writer didn't say rejecting such a great salvation, but he says, what does he say? Starts with an N. Ne- oh, so what? There we go. Neglecting. You're like, oh, I think this is right. Um, it says neglecting such a great salvation. That, that he's, he's not encouraging sinners to become Christians. What he's saying is he's encouraging Christians to pay attention to all that comes in this great salvation that they've received from the Lord. That the, 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 the more, more spiritual problems, guys, are caused by neglect than perhaps any other failures on our part. Any other failures. That, that we neglect God's Word. Uh, we neglect prayer. We neglect worship with God's people. We neglect other opportunities for spiritual growth. And as a result, this is just the way it works out. Okay, So when you end up drifted, and you're like, how did I get here? It's because of neglect on, on these things. That, that, and I think most of the time it's because we think that some of the, the work, we don't want to do the hard work and we don't want to pursue the heart of the Father and we don't want to spend the time in those disciplines and, and we think that those are boring at times and, and really they're not because they're not given to us as forms of entertainment. They're given to us as forms of health. They're here to make us stronger and healthier so that we can be more productive in the kingdom of God. and so, But the anchor doesn't end up moving. We do. We do. And so, so the picture painted in verse 2 is, is one that we talk about frequently here at Merge, that there's a great price that comes with sin. And the Bible says the price of that is death. And that death is separated from God. And God tells us that in order to restore the relationship with Him, there must be retribution made for your sins. And, and so, both sins of commission, which are transgressions, and, and sins of omission, which is just simple disobedience, because I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that kind of stuff. Uh, but the power in, in verse 3 is asking us, how can we escape the price if we neglect the great salvation of Jesus? How do we? So how do we avoid spiritually drifting uh, so, so we avoid, I should say, spiritually drifting by anchoring ourselves to the Word. That Jesus as the Word and the Bible as the source for knowing how we live changed by Jesus. And so, so let's just stop just for a moment because I've given you a ton of information. Okay? And just ask yourself this question in this moment rhetorically. Am I anchored or am I drifting? 
And now here's the thing. If you're not in Christ, and I don't say this to guilt you, uh, you most definitely are drifting. Uh, and, and to be honest, you're lost at sea. And, and, and there's no hope of you swimming yourself to safety. doesn't matter how good you are at swimming. You can't swim yourself to safety. But the good news is that Jesus can bring you to shore. And now if you are found in Christ, but you feel you're miles away from where you need to be, then I think you need to know that there's hope for you. And, and, and though you are adrift, there is a way to return to your place of anchoring. That's entirely possible. And so, and this is largely the focus we get in this second section, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to walk through this one even more slowly. Uh, and so, so it starts with this, verse number 5. Um, For it was not the angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. So, so it, for it was not to angels that the world subjected the world to come, uh, of which we are speaking. And so just like that word, therefore, uh, at verse 1, for is important to us here, now. Uh, and so, so the writer is giving this basis or, or defense of what uh, they just said, being that our salvation is so great and it's so well attested that, that it is folly and it's dangerous to neglect it uh, and to drift away into indifference. And the question is, well, why? If I am saved and I am tethered somehow to Jesus, then why does it matter how far away I drift? And he comes in and he answers this question. He says, because God did not subject the world to angels. So, so how, do, how does that make sense? That, that Don't neglect your great salvation, for God did not subject uh, to angels to rule the world to come. So, so what's at stake here is who ru- rules the world to come. That, that to whom is the age to come subjected, I guess. And, and so, so the answer to this question tells us something crucial about how great our salvation is, so that we will not neglect it, but that we will closer take heed to it, uh, that, that it's helpful to keep in mind what verse 3 speaks of as a great salvation. Because it's referring not only to all that Christ did by His death and His resurrection to purify us from sins, but also to the effects of what happens when He returns. What is our proper place in the world when Christ comes back? And we know this because in in chapter 1, verse 14, the writer says, "...who will inherit salvation." So, So in other words... We experience part of our salvation now in that uh, we have the purification of our sins and reconciliation with God, but there's more. There's so much more. And I think rarely do we talk about the more, but it's so, it's so incredible what the more is that, that we are yet to inherit. And this is what verses 5 through 9 talk about. And then we can paraphrase it like this, that we don't neglect our coming salvation because it's great and because in the coming world it's not angels who will have everything in subjection to them. And so the question is, who then? And how? Who will rule? And what's the answer to that question which makes our salvation so great that we'd be utter fools to neglect it for mere power plays in this life or or mere possessions in this life or or even mere family 
And that's what Jesus tells this parable in, in Luke chapter 14. And he says it, and, and, and I love the way he talks about it because he's saying, hey, there are people who neglect the gospel's call. And they will say things like, I'm too busy to give my heart to Christ. And so he says, uh, he, he said to them, a man once gave a great banquet and he invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see to it. Uh, please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke and, uh, of oxen and, and I have to go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have, a mar- I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Right? And some of you are like, oh, that's a, that's a marital joke that Jesus just told. And it's this classic picture from Jesus of what it means to neglect so great a salvation. And notice this. All of those excuses are good excuses. Right? We make them all the time. We make them all the time. We say, it's not that big of a deal that I miss this one banquet. That, that I, have, I have business to take care of. I have a wife to take care of. And, and Jesus says that if you're not careful, you will neglect and you will remain lost. And now, so here we are, Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, and the writer's helping us say, don't do that. And he's laboring with the means appointed by God to save us, namely with words. And he's saying, don't neglect this great salvation. Don't neglect what Christ has purchased for you and what's coming to you in the world to come. That, that for in the world to come, it's not angels that God said you will rule. So, but how? That's, that's really the question that we're trying to answer here. And verses 6 through 8 give us this, aim, this answer. And it comes from uh, Psalm 8. David is writing and he's pondering. And he says these words and I, I love them. They are, they're, it's just a moment of when you are spending time with God and you are just so amazed that He even knows your name. He comes in and he says, uh, the, the writer in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 says, it's been testified somewhere, referring to Psalm 8, um, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care for him? You made him for a little while, uh, I'm sorry, you made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. But then there's a dilemma that rises to the surface. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. And so so in in Psalm 8, the passage refers to, to human beings in general. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And and all this refers to this seeming insignificant what is man and at the same time this amazing majesty of man that you have made him a little lower than angels. It's a weird phrase, right? Right? Like, who are we? We're so insignificant, but yet you made us so we have great purpose. All at the same time. And so, so in this psalm, David is, is celebrating 
the majesty of God by calling attention to the fact that man who is created in God's image is appointed to be ruler over creation. And we can go back to Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2, and 3 when God creates and then He tells Adam and Eve, hey, have dominion over this place. Take care of this place. And the moment that Adam and Eve chose to sin, then all of a sudden, our, all of creation was no longer subject to man as it was designed. And so, so this brings up an important question about who the writer is referring to in, in these verses. Is he, is he taking the words of Psalm uh, A and referring them to Christ? Or is he saying man in general? Or is there some interplay where both of those things are communicated? And I think, and we're going to find out when we get to the end of this this morning, but I think really what he's talking about is there's some interplay that we're talking about both us and Jesus. Um, so let's try to make sense out of what we're trying to say. Uh, the, the flow kind of goes like this. One through four say um, that, that we should be tremendously vigilant over our minds and over our hearts so that we don't drift away from the Word of God, that we don't neglect our great salvation, which is coming to us as an inheritance that if we hold fast to the confession of hope, we firmly see it played out all the way at the end. Then verses 5-8, through eight, that salvation is indeed very great. And it's worth embracing with joy and, and perseverance because God did not subject the coming world of our salvation to angels, but to us. And he says, all of creation, you will rule over it. And so this is, this is why our salvation is so great and immeasurably valuable. Because in this salvation, we are, we are destined. We are destined for something unspeakably great. And so, but there's, there's one massive problem. Right? Verse 8. He comes in and he says, At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Uh, and I, I think to Him is still referring to man as human beings in, in Psalm 8. And so this tension builds. How is, how is our problem solved? That, that man is to rule creation under God, but we don't see him ruling. And so, so if our hope is in this great salvation, that someday those who have held fast to Jesus will be revealed as the sons and the daughters of God, and all creation will serve rather than ravage us the way that it does, then, then we should be victorious in all ways even today. But that's... Not the case, because we have, we have floods, we have hurricanes, we have tornadoes, we have diseases, and we have death. And so, so verse 8 says very realistically that wherever you look in the world today, that it's, it's not what you see. All things are not subject to man. And so this is how Psalm 8 gets fulfilled. That's, that's, that's not how it's fulfilled in man. John Piper said it this way, that man is subject to the creation in dreadful ways. We, we try to persuade ourselves that we are the masters of our own fate and that, that since we can make airplanes and radios and televisions and computers and cellular phones and lasers and antibiotics and artificial heart valves and pacemakers and fertilizers and corneas, that, that we are indeed now the rulers of creation, that all things are subjected to us now, and, and there are many problems with this persuasion, he says, that, that the most glaring one, the one that concerns the writer of Hebrews most, is death. 
that, that whatever we've been able to conquer as human beings, we have not conquered death. That it triumphs everywhere. It, it strikes babies and teens and young adults, midlifers, old people. It, it scoffs at our medicines and our surgeries and our diets and our vitamins and, and our exercise programs. So don't even do it anymore. Just don't. Just give up, right? That when all is said and done, rocket scientists die, politicians die, doctors die, professors die, Nobel laureates die, the rich die, the poor die, the good die, the evil die, the farmers die, the bakers die, carpenters die, computer programmers die. This is all very encouraging, right? Feeling good about it. Pastor, he says preachers die, and I'm like, that's a little close to home, bro. That, that death is not subject to man, no matter how much we try to prevent it which makes what we do with our lives so much more important. And the urgency of our lives for significance so much more important. That, so there, there's nothing is ultimately subject to us because it's only a matter of time before it's all taken away. And what we thought we mastered will be ripped out of our hands. And, and the writer is painfully aware of this at the end of verse 8. And the psalm says that, that man has great destiny to rule over creation. And this is part of our, our great salvation. But the reality is we are not conquerors, as one of the commentators says. We are not conquerors. We are more like carcasses. And so, so what does the writer then say to rescue our great salvation? And verse 9 gives us this answer. And I want to make sure you see this in connection with verse 8 at the end. So the issue at hand is at present, okay? So, so we are to rule and the world is to be subject, subjected to us, right? If we are in Christ. But at present, we don't see everything in subjection to us. And then verse 9 comes in and there's three words I want you, four words I want you to say at the very beginning. But we see who? Him. We see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For everyone. I love this. So, so our issue is we don't run it. We, the world does not do what we tell it to. But he says, but we see Him. We see Him. And you remember His place. That as, as the Son of God, as, as the radiance of the glory of God, He is enthroned at the right hand of majesty. And everything is subjected to Him. So in other words, we, we don't see Psalm 8 fulfilled in our, ourselves yet. But what we see in, in Psalm 8 fulfilled in Christ, that we are still subject to death and all kinds of weaknesses and, and futilities, but Jesus has now passed from weakness and death and is crowned with glory and honor. He is seated in power at the right hand of God and all of His enemies are subjected to Him as footstools for His feet. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. That's why 
when we all gather together, and we can start wrapping this up, it's fine. Uh, that's why when we all just gather together and we sing our last song, All Hail King Jesus, it fits. It fits. It's one of those songs that you're like, man, my heart doesn't have to do a lot of work when I see Jesus very clearly. When I see Him for who He is, that, that yes, the world is not subject to me, but it is subject to Him. And the author looks at us and he says, he says, listen, I want you to understand that in your inheritance of salvation, one day those things will be for you because they are for him. That you get to, you get to share that. And so, so Jesus is this great forerunner of our salvation and what's happened to him will happen to us. And that's great news. Because he tasted death for us we can be sure that we will share His rule over creation. And so, I guess really at the end of every lesson, you need to ask yourself this. It's like those kids' programs. So what did we learn today, kids? Right? We say, okay, so how do I wear that? What do I do about that? How do I respond? And, and we've been talking about it all morning, that when you are found in Christ you don't pull anchor. You don't drift because your eyes stay focused on Him. Not on the pain, not on the futility, not on the frustration, not on the sickness, not on the death of this age. That, that those things in Christ will not have the final word. They don't. They don't win the day. You may feel that they win the moment. You may feel that they win the year. But they don't win it because Christ alone is victorious and everything in all of creation is subjected to Him. And then He comes along, okay? He comes along and He says, you are found in Me. And so I stand in front of you and I become your identity. I become your place of safe refuge. That Christ has conquered death and all the sin and all the pain that leads to death. And so, so our response is that we would think on Him. We would consider Him. We would look to Him. I don't know, this morning I was studying and this passage out of Romans just kept coming to mind. And it, I think it fits better at the end, but in order to tell you the end, I need to tell you kind of the context of the beginning. Paul is asking this question. I love Romans. I love it. Oh, it's such a great book. But he comes in, and he's thinking about the love of God in chapter 8. And he says, he says what then shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Christ graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed, who indeed is in interceding for us. 
Then he gets to this question as his worship begins to build. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's big enough to do it? Who's powerful enough to rip me from the grips of God's great love in Christ? Then he says, he says who, who does that? Who can separate us? Shall it be tribulation? Shall it be distress? Shall it be persecution? Shall it be famine? Shall it be nakedness? Shall it be danger? Shall it be the sword? And then he says, as it is written, for your sake, O God, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to, the, to be slaughtered. And then he gets to this conclusion. He says, no. He says, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes! Kim's like, yeah! That's it! That's it! So when the author of Hebrews says, how great is this salvation? He says, you just look at Jesus and, and you can't believe that you can't go anywhere that He's not in control of. And so we pay careful attention to where our eyes are, lest we drift from our great salvation. That some of us were like, it'd be great to be a king for a day. And what we're learning here is that that's exactly what we get to be with Christ. We get to be. Now, my money says, all of my money versus all of your money says, you want to be a king of the day so you can rule people, right? You can tell them what to do, how to do it, right? Yeah? Like, I'd be thrilled just to be the king of my house for one day. But all of this, we get to rule because God loves us. And He sends Christ. And we get to sing all hell King Jesus at church. And sometimes our hearts catch up to those words. We get to open our word. We get to open the Bible and we get to see God pour out His love for us. And then we get to respond to that with our lives. We get to walk in accountability with one another. Because that's really how the body was supposed to be built. So if, you're, if you just kind of casually come in, you're like, hey, I like going here and sitting next to some of these people, but I don't want them to know my life. That's, you understand, that's not the design. That we get to do all of this because we've experienced the first part of a great salvation that Jesus has purified us from our sins. And then what we get to wait for eagerly is this day when we get to rule with Him. Our desire this week is that we love God. Bye. Please stand with me. We wrap up. We make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. There'll be a group of people over here. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, we want to have that conversation with you. We don't believe in selling Jesus to you. 
um, because any version of our sales pitch would be too cheap. But we believe there's no way to have satisfaction and peace and joy in life apart from Him. And then lastly, if you want to take some time and remember the price that Jesus paid through communion, those elements are available. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we praise You today because You are worthy of praise, not that not that You had to earn it from us, that You are praiseworthy because of Your great love for us and Your movement in our direction through Jesus. And, and what I pray today is that we would have eyes that see Him so clearly that our hearts stay anchored to the cross and to the resurrection. That we would allow that to shape our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams and, and just the movements of our lives that our words and our deeds would say something so beautiful about who You are. I pray that we would be people worthy of the Gospel that we would live it out. It's in Christ's name we pray.